It's always fun to be at one community. And uh, Pastor Conway will be back next week. He'll continue the second half of those flags of a healthy marriage. He asked me to come and speak on anything on marriage. And I thought, what could I talk about? There's so much to talk about. Uh, we could talk about communication today and how important it is that we communicate like God tells us to communicate, to speak the truth with love, to do it in a current way. Don't let things pile up. We could talk about doing it in a constructive way. We could talk about romance today. I hope you're still romancing your spouse, all right? Because if you don't, somebody else will, okay? I'm just saying, all right? We could talk about that, or we could talk about expectations, because one of the traps that we fall into when we think about marriage is we begin to depend upon our spouse to provide for us what only God can provide for us. And when we do that, then it puts the pressure on us to change them. And when we depend upon them to provide what only God can provide, fear comes when they don't provide that because they're human beings like we are. And then we begin to manipulate them instead of communicate and love them. Could talk about that. Could talk about resolving conflict. Hey, hey, I've got some good news for you. I've been married. This summer will be 50 years to Marsha. Uh, here's the good news. Every year you get something new to argue about. Did you know that? God is so creative. He just, he doesn't want us to get bored. So every year we have new conflict that we didn't have. But here's the problem. If you have an issue in the first year and you don't resolve that, and then you have another one in the second year, and for 50 years, that gets a little, that gets a little heavy, doesn't it? All right? But here's what I thought I'd talk about today. I thought I'd talk about the most important thing to impact your marriage. And that is simply your relationship with God. Because nothing will have a greater impact than your relationship with God. Uh, you know, uh, Pastor Conway talked about forgiveness last week. Friends, if you haven't been forgiven, you don't know how to forgive, all right? And he talked about grace. And if God's not pouring grace, undeserved favor into your life, then you don't know how. You've never seen that model of pouring that kind of undeserved grace into your spouse's life. Our connection to God will have a greater impact on our marriage than anything else. And the thing that will impact our relationship with God more than anything else is the presence of unconfessed sin in our life. Where we yield to temptation. Where we begin, even though we're followers of Christ, we get to a point in our life where we think that we can do life without him. And that we have to step outside of his will to have a need met that only he can meet. And when that happens, friends, we don't have the power, the love, the grace, the wisdom to love our spouse. And so it's essential that we work on that relationship. So that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about overcoming temptation and the impact that that's going to have on your marriage. Now let me define temptation. Temptation is when you and I are enticed to step outside of God's will to have our needs met. See, there's this circle that I want to stay in. It's called the will of God, all right? And in that will, the Bible says that God will meet all of my needs according to the riches of Christ Jesus. I don't have to step outside of God's will, but Satan comes and he is the deceiver. And he says, no, you have to step out. You have to step out. God's holding something from you. God is not good. You have to disobey God in order to be fulfilled in life. Now, in Ephesians, the sixth chapter, it says that that circle, if I stay in that circle, there is a shield of faith. And the shield of faith will stop all, it will quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. But if I step outside of God's will, I don't have that promise even as a believer. See, Satan wants to destroy your home. 
Satan wants to rob the joy of your marriage from you. Satan wants to destroy your children. And if you'll stay in God's will, you'll stand behind the, 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 the shield of faith. It will stop all the fiery darts that Satan is throwing at you. Now listen, it doesn't say that bad things won't happen to you if you're in God's will. We know that from the word of God that tribulation is in this fallen world. But if we stand in the circle of God's will, it can't hurt us. It can't hurt us. His grace is sufficient. If you have a Bible with you, or you have an app with your Bible on it, I want to invite you to turn to James, the first chapter. And in the, James, the first chapter, it talks to us about temptation. It talks to us about that enticement to step outside of God's will for our life. There in verse 2, it says this. It says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, some of you, let me stop there, will have the word temptations there, because it can either be translated trial or temptation. We're going to see why in a moment. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces something. It produces endurance. Now, let me just, first of all, kind of widen the field a little bit. Because usually when we think about temptation, we think about the enticement to do something we shouldn't be doing. The enticement to lie, to make ourselves look better. Or to lie to avoid consequences. Lying and stealing and adultery. Those are things that we're tempted to do. But that's not the limit of temptation. Sometimes we're secondly tempted not to do something we know we should be doing. All right? Some of you got saved, but you didn't, you didn't get very far into the journey. All right? You received forgiveness from God, but you haven't joined the team yet. You know, uh, football has once been described as 22 people in desperate need of rest being watched by thousands of people in desperate need of exercise. <laughs> and sometimes that's a pretty good description of the church where we become spectators. And God's asking you to share your faith at your workplace and at school. He's asking you to give faithfully and, and, and to invest in the lives of others. He's asking you to serve. And yet we're sitting black, back on our blessed assurance that we're not doing anything. Friends, there is an enticement not to do that which you should do. And the Bible says in this same book, for those who know to do right and they don't do it, that's a sin as well. All right? We like to point at the folks who are drinking too much and doing drugs and sleeping around, but there's some folks who are squeaky clean who are just the biggest sinners as those folks who are doing the things they shouldn't do because they're not doing what God has called them to do. Then there's a third category here, and I don't want you to miss it because some of you are there today, and that's the temptation to doubt, the temptation to not think that God is a good God as we've declared today. Paul and Silas went to a little town called Philippi, and they were preaching the gospel. They were doing exactly what God called them to do. They were right smack dab in the middle of God's will, and they healed a woman. And as a result of healing her, some people lost an ability to make money off of her. And so they dragged them into the town square. They ripped off their clothes, and they beat them until they were bloody, and then they threw them into a dungeon. And while they were in that dungeon in the middle of the night, sitting in their own blood, not knowing whether they were going to live or die, they were tempted. And their temptation was not to go do something they shouldn't do. They didn't have that freedom. It wasn't a temptation not to do uh, what they should be doing. They had just done it. It was a temptation to say, where is God? Is God still good? Does God still care? And let me tell you what happened. Paul and Silas, the Bible tells us, in the middle of the night began to sing praises to God acapella the praise team was not with them all right 
And they prayed to God. You see, they didn't yield to that temptation to give up on God. And some of you there today, some of you are there because of health issues. And you wonder every day as you face the same pain, that chronic pain that never goes away, does God care? Does he hear? And you're being tempted just like the person who's being tempted to do drugs. You're being tempted to doubt God. It's the same evil one who's trying to pull you out of the middle of God's will. Some of you are, are in that place today because of financial situations and, and because of things you can't control. You're just living from paycheck to paycheck. Or maybe there's not even a paycheck. And you're being tempted to wonder if God is good, if his timing is really the right timing, if he cares about you as his children. And so I want us to think of all those because that will apply to every single person of us that's here. Then the scripture tells us what our attitude is to be toward this entire enticement which is kind of really surprising it's counterintuitive he says count it all joy when you enter various trials or temptations now why in the world would i be happy when satan tries to get me to do something i shouldn't do or not do what i ought to do or to doubt by god well first of all it's because it gives us a chance to grow look back there in james 1 3 and 4 it says knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you might be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. When I was a kid growing up, I have, uh, had an older brother, still have an older brother, but he was a, about two years ahead of me in school. And I remember he went into high school and he started lifting weights. He bought him some weights. He brought them into the, in the garage and he would go out there and he would lift weights. And I thought that was pretty cool. And so I decided I would go out and lift weights as well to kind of follow the example of my brother. My brother would get out there six days a week, and it seemed like every time he got out there, he was adding to his press. And as a result of that, he had to carry around a small baseball bat to keep the girls off of him, all right? I thought, that's intriguing. And so I went out there one day, and I took a lot of the weights off from what he had lifted, and I remember lifted those weights twice, got a bead of sweat right here on my head, and I went back in the house. But I had a regular routine. Once every 30 or 40 days, I would do that whole routine all over again. Now, again, my brother was increasing his weight and also increasing his fan club. What happens when we don't exercise? When I was a college student, I went up to speak at a youth camp. And uh, we went up into the mountains one time to ride mountain bikes. And we rode up this mountain. Boy, it was hard. And the, you know, the oxygen's thinner there. But it was fun when we started coming down because when we came down, you didn't have to do that much work. And we were going pretty good. And I remember looking down at the speedometer and wondering to myself, I wonder how fast this bike will go. And about the time that that thought occurred to me, I looked up and I saw that I was about to go off of a cliff. And I had two choices. I could either ditch that bike on that asphalt or I could fly off the cliff. And I did about halfway between the two. And for the first time in my life, I had a broken arm. And I learned something when I broke that arm. Because it was immobile for about nine or ten weeks that when that cast came off, I found out I didn't have the ability to lift that arm anymore. My muscle had atrophy. And I had to go through all of this training just to get my muscles back friends if you don't use your muscles you lose your muscles there is a muscle called faith and if you don't use it you lose it and if you use it it gets stronger so that you're able to face greater things in the future Paul and Silas 
are in the prison and they exercise their faith. They stay in the will of God. And the Bible tells us that at midnight, God took his mighty hand and he put it on that prison. And all the doors flew open. And Paul and Silas could have just walked out if they wanted to. Now, I have a question for you. The next time that Paul and Silas were in jail, and they were in jail many times after that because of their faith. Do you think they were as worried after seeing God swing the doors open? Why? Because they exercised their faith, and their faith got stronger. Now, let me stop real quick and just say that every time Paul and Silas were in jail, God did not swing the doors open. Okay? In fact, Paul probably died in a Roman prison. But here's the point, my friends. Paul knew that he could. And he would if that was his plan. You see what I'm saying here? There's a reason the Bible keeps saying, remember, remember, remember. We sang earlier about this is my testimony. We went back to some good old hymns. The reason we go back is to remember that God has always been faithful. He's always come through for us. He's always kept his word, hasn't he? But you don't know that if you're not tested. You don't know that if you're not in a trial. You don't know that if you're tempted to step outside of his will to have that need met. And you say, no, my God is good. I will stay in his will. And then he meets that need just at the right time. We can be joyful when we're enticed because it gives us a chance to grow. But we can also be joyful when we're enticed because it gives us an opportunity to witness. So those doors flew open. And there was a jailer who was there, a Philippian jailer. And he pulled out his sword. He was about to kill himself. He was about to commit suicide because he knew that for every prisoner left, he was responsible with his own life. And Paul cried out in the darkness. Out of the darkness came Paul's voice. He said, do yourself no harm for we're all here. And that jailer came in and he wanted some answers. He'd never seen anything like this. He saw the miracle of God's intervention, but he also saw something different in Paul and Silas's life. And when he went for answers, he didn't go to the harlots that were in that jail. He didn't go to the robbers or the thieves or the murderers in that jail. He went to those crazy guys singing Amazing Grace a cappella in the basement. And I'm going to tell you something, friends. Your light shines the brightest into darkness, doesn't it? And when somebody criticizes you, and instead of you sending barbs back their way, you return good for evil, they go, whoa, what's going on here? I've never seen this before. And when they see you go through financial problems or health problems, and they see your faith, they go, whoa, there's something different about this man. There's something different about this woman. And when everybody says, hey, let's go do this and that, and you know it's wrong, and you say, hey, thank you for including me, but I can't participate in that because I've given my life to Jesus. They go, First of all, they'll make fun of you. I remember in high school when I got serious about my faith, they started calling me preacher. I kind of like that title now. <laughs> but back then, it's kind of embarrassed to me. And you know what I found out? I found out that if I did not return evil for or evil, but instead I returned good for evil, that they begin to say, what's different? It threatened them. That's the only reason they were ridiculing me. It threatened them. And you know what? I've baptized most of those high school friends, and they're members of my church now, all right? I was a summer missionary in California, and I went to eat at some people's home after the service, and there was a photograph of a young lady there in the dining room. I said, who's that? And they said, well, that's our daughter, Susan. She died in her senior year of high school of cancer. I said, I'm sorry to hear that. Tell me about Susan. 
They told me that when she was a sophomore in high school at a youth camp, she felt the call of God on her life to be a medical missionary, to go somewhere and, and to use medicine to reach people for God. And then she found out the end of that year that she had cancer and she went through all kinds of treatment. And there came a point where she re they realized that she was going to die and they thought to themselves at that time, they thought, well, Susan misunderstood. She's not going to be a medical missionary. But she said, we were wrong. Because there are doctors and there are nurses all over Southern California now who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior because they treated our daughter. And they saw how she responded in faith to the cancer that she had, and it blew them away. And they came to say, why, why are, is that going on in your life? And she was able to be a missionary to the medical profession. We can be joyful when we're tempted because it helps us grow. We can be joyful when we're tempted because it gives us a chance to witness. But don't miss this. We can also be joyful when we are tempted because it gives us an opportunity to express our gratitude to Jesus. Look there, if you will, in verse 12. In verse 12, it says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial or temptation, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's look at that first word, blessed. Blessed is the one who endures temptation. Friends, there is not a promise outside of the shield of faith to be blessed. There is a promise in God's will behind the shield of faith, and, and the promise is that we'll be blessed or we'll be blessed. I think about the time that Jesus was preaching on the side of the mountain, and there were 5,000 plus, and it got to be lunchtime, and Jesus didn't want the crowd to go all the way to town and have to eat and then come all the way back. Important things were happening. And, so he told his disciples, go find out if there's any food in the crowd. And you remember the story. You know the story. Well, the little boy had his loaves and his fishes. And, and one of the disciples said, well, what is this among so many? And here's what it says next in that scripture. It says, Jesus took those little loaves and those little fishes and he blessed them. Now, friends, something happens when God blesses something. The Bible tells us there was enough food to feed everybody there, and there were baskets and baskets and baskets left over. Go to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament says that Abraham and Sarah had a promise from God that they would be the parents of a great nation. But they were old, and her womb was dead. And then the Scripture says that God blessed Sarah's womb. Everything changed. I'm going to ask you something. Do you want your marriage to be blessed? Let me ask you that question again. Some of you didn't understand what I asked. Do you want your marriage to be blessed? Yes. Those of you not married, do you want your relationships to be blessed? Yes. Then stand in the will of God. Yes. And be joyful. Be joyful when Satan tries to entice you to go out to do something you shouldn't do or not do something you should do or to begin to doubt God. Because of your testing of your faith produces endurance. And you might be perfect, what does it say? And complete, that means having everything you need. It's found there. But it says you will receive a crown. Now the word crown is used in two primary ways in the scriptures. One is when it talks about uh, those who come to Christ because of us. Paul was writing to one group and he said, you are my crown. When I get to heaven one day, the Bible promises that I'm going to have a crown. You're my crown. And I'm going to get to heaven one day and I'm going to find out that you came to know him because God used me 
And that's going to be my reward. But there's another sense in which the crown is here, and it is the sense in which we stand at the judgment seat, and we're going to go into heaven not on our deeds. We're going to go by the grace of God. But then after that, we're going to receive crowns. Those of us who've entered heaven by the grace of God, we're going to receive crowns, and those crowns are going to represent the life that we live from the day we were saved until we came home. Now, some of those crowns are going to be made out of gold. And it's going to have sapphires and diamonds. Others, tinfoil and rhinestones. I'm just saying. Some 30-fold, it says. Some 60-fold. Some 100-fold. Now, what are we going to do with those crowns when those crowns are presented to us? Are we going to take that crown and put it on our head and strut around heaven? I guess you see my crown. What happened to your crown, Mrs. Brown? No. The Bible says those crowns will never touch a hair on our head. Because here's the reality, friends. We didn't earn that crown. We didn't earn that crown. The life I now live, I live because of Jesus. And the good that I do, I do because Jesus. I'm just getting out of the way. And so I'm going to take that crown, whatever it looks like. By the way, have you ever been to a party and you didn't know that you were supposed to bring a gift? That's how it's going to feel for some folks on Judgment Day. Because I'm going to take the life that I lived from the time that I was seven years old and I gave my heart and life to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit came to live inside me, to empower me, to live behind the shield of faith to this very day, to that very day. And I'm going to take, and I'm not going to put that crown on because I didn't earn it. I'm going to lay it at the nail-scarred feet of Jesus Christ. What do you want to lay at his feet? The one who hung on the cross and had a crown of thorns pressed upon his brow. The one who was whipped until his back looked like a freshly plowed field. The one who hung on that rugged cross and lifted up so he could breathe and then fell back down again until he could do it no longer. What do you want to lay at his feet? Count it joy that when you leave this building today, those of you who are watching us online in whatever building that you're in, this afternoon, you're going to have an opportunity to put something on that crown. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're going to have an opportunity to build that crown. And what you're doing is you're sending a love note, a thank you note, to no less than the Savior of your soul. Count it joy when you encounter various trials and temptations because the trying of your faith produces a product, and that is endurance. And when you have endured, you will receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to us. Now, that's what's at stake. Now, if that's at stake, our growth, our witness, our expression of gratitude, then we better know what the path of failure is. And in this same passage, it tells us the path of failure. Look, if you will, in verse 13 through 15. It says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's a progression, it says. It begins 
with lust. Now, let me just describe lust. Lust, the best metaphor I know for lust is that it is a soil. Okay? There are things I found out you can't grow in Texas, at least not in our part of Texas, all right? And you actually have to take other soil from other places and mix it with your soil so that that soil will cause those particular plants to grow. Let me ask you a question today. The soil of your life, think about it. The friends you hang around, the books that you read, the media that you watch, the goals that you set, the things you daydream about, that's your soil. Here's my question. Are the seeds of Satan or the seeds of your Savior more likely to grow in your soil as it is today? What are you doing to prepare to protect the soil of your life so that it will bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples? Another way of looking at it is that the lust is the way we think. Because the Bible says that what we believe eventually becomes how we behave. All right? So what are you thinking about? I was a pastor of a little country church while I was a college student. And Marsha and I had just gotten married and uh, we went out to live in this little parsonage, but nobody had lived in the parsonage for about 10 years. They rented it out to several folks and then it had laid dormant for a while. And so the whole church came together. It was about 99 people on a good Sunday. And we all put our work clothes on and we began to remodel that little parsonage. And we painted and we replaced boards. And Somebody had actually raised chickens on the back porch of the enclosed porch of that little house. But we got it all cleaned up. We were so proud. But there was one thing we did not fix, and it was the front porch. We had a budget. We had a limit. And, and what had happened is long, long before then, a tree had grown up right next to the front steps of the front porch. And as a result, whenever I would walk into my house, I wouldn't just walk into my house. I would walk into my house because that tree and its roots had pushed the concrete up at an angle. And, and to fix that, we would have had to saw down that tree. We would have had to pull out those roots. We would have had to take out the concrete and re-pour the concrete. It just wasn't in our budget. But it occurred to me one day that there was a time when that tree, because that tree was not planted right next to the step. There was, a tr there was a time when that little seed fell in the ground and that little tree was just a little sprout. And if somebody had had the forethought, they could have reached down and... That's all it would have taken then. But left in the ground to do its damage, left in the ground to do its damage. See, Satan comes to us, and he wants to enter into a discussion with us about stepping outside of God's will, and he wants to question the goodness of God. Remember when I was a student, and I'd be sitting in class, and it was test day. And there I was, and sometimes I didn't always do the preparation that I needed to. And I would look over to my right, and there was a young lady who was the smartest kid in class who had her paper slightly turned toward me. <laughs> and I heard a little voice in my head that said, I have two daughters. One of them is kind of a daddy's girl. She was always wanting to please mom and dad. 
I, I think we whipped her one time in her whole life, and it lasted the rest of the time. <laughs> you know, if I, if I ever even threatened, if my hand ever went to the belt, she would fall down in sackcloth and ashes and <laughs> repent and surrender to missions. And My other daughter, on the other hand, Rachel, she was my strong-willed child, and we used to spank Rachel, and she'd look up and say, that's the best you have? And the other thing about Rachel is she, she was like her daddy in that she liked to debate. And so whenever we told her to do something, she'd say, why? What's the reason for that? When I was growing up, I said I would never say to my, parent, my kids because I told you so. I decided I wasn't going to do that until we had Rachel. <laughs> and there were times when she legitimately wanted to know the why behind the how. And so we'd tell her. But there came a point where you realized that she wasn't looking for information. She was trying to wear us down. And at that point, I decided I would coin my own phrase. And my phrase was, Rachel, end of discussion. She knew that if she said anything after that, she would regret it for a very long time. I'm sitting in class. And I hear a voice say, And you know what? If I start a conversation with Satan, I'll find a reason to cheat. Have you noticed that? Yes, yes, yes. I think to myself, I don't even like this teacher. As if that had anything to do with <laughs> lying and stealing. Seemed to work at the time for me. How about you? Or I could say, you know, I know this class. Almost everybody in this class cheats. So if I cheat, it's just evening the field. Or this was my favorite Oh, God, I'll never cheat again after this time. (laughs) Or when I heard that voice, cheat, I could say, no, end of discussion. Now, you don't want to say that out loud because the other students will look at you. (laughs) Some of you, this last year, you were at work or you were in your neighborhood or you were at a party. And somebody who wasn't your spouse came on to you. And you heard a little voice. The only answer to that request is no. End of discussion. Say it with me. No. End of discussion. You see, first of all, we think about it. Then we do it. Then comes death. See, that's how Satan gets his foot in the door. This ain't his first rodeo. He's better at arguing than you are. He'll lead you somewhere where it makes sense at the moment for you to do what you're not supposed to do, for you not to do what you ought to do, for you to doubt a faithful God who's always kept his promises. So you don't go there. You don't live there. You see, somebody cuts you down verbally, and then you go and you begin to fantasize about what you could have said to them if you'd just been fast enough and sharp enough, and then a day later, a week later, a month later, they jab you again, and bow, 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 bow. You cut them to shreds, and you feel so good, and you have failed to grow. You've lost your witness, and you've doubted God, because God said, don't do that. First we lust, then we sin. And then death. One of the very first scriptures that I ever memorized as a high school student was 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That says, there is no temptation taken you, but such is common to all man. And our God is faithful. 
And he will not suffer that you are tempted above that which you are able, but with the temptation provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, friends, I learned that scripture when I was a ninth grader. Do you think that's come in handy sometime between the ninth grade and 69 years old? It's like we're in a boat and we're going down a stream. And there's a waterfall at the end of this stream and we know that it's there and we know that it's dangerous. But it's kind of fun to be on the river. And so we are going along and after a while we even see the mist come up from that waterfall and it begins to fall on us. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of adventuresome. And then finally the tip of our boat extends over that fall and we see our death at the bottom of those rocks. And we say, help God, save me. God said, I provided a way of escape. And it wasn't here, it was over there. You see, a long, long time ago, with very little effort, you could have plucked it out. Very little effort, you could just take your paddle. It didn't take a whole lot. You were mature enough, you were strong enough, you had the support system to paddle over to the side and get out of the boat going to a place that is death because that death is the death of your maturity as a Christian it's the death of your witness oh my friends it takes so long to build a reputation for the glory of God and you can lose it in a moment especially this day and age with social media friends everybody everybody's watching and by the way don't believe the lie of Satan that says Nobody will ever know. The nail-scarred feet and the nail-scarred hands, he will know. That's enough. Oh, it's just you. It's just a sin that you're committing. You've done it so many times. What's one more time? What's one more time is that when I step outside of the shield of faith and I go all the way over here to have a need met that I'm not trusting God to meet in my life, then I'm disappointed once again in what Satan offers. It does not quench my thirst. And then I come to myself like the prodigal came to himself in the pig pen. And I look back and I see that my father is standing on the hillside, scanning the horizon, and he still will welcome me home. And that's good news, my friends, that I can come back and I can be in his will again. But friends, there was a travel time to the destination that I shouldn't have gone. And there was a time I lived in that foreign land and there were resources that were spent and there's a time to get back to there. And during that whole time, I'm not blessing anybody. I'm not witnessing to anybody. Friends, when I sin, I don't sin solo. I heard all the people I could have ministered to in that time frame to come and go. What is it that Satan is offering you outside of his will? that you've not come to believe that God will provide for you in his will. Count it joy, my friends, when you encounter various trials and temptation, knowing that the trying of your faith produces a stronger faith. It produces a mighty witness. James 4, verse 7 and 8, it says this, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. See, the reason the devil is still living in your home is because you have not resisted him. He has not heard end of discussion from you. Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We're double-minded. We're here at church today and we're singing praises to him. And then we're going to go out and live like everybody else tomorrow. 
God can't bless that. He can't bless your marriage. He can't bless your parenting. If you've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church, cleanse your hands, you double-minded. Purify your hearts. Let them be singular in love and gratitude and appreciation to him. There's not anything you can do to improve your marriage more than have a right relationship with God. Tend to that relationship and it will provide everything you need for the other relationship. There was a study done probably now 20 years ago by Gallup and two other organizations. And they surveyed couples and they found out that couples who pray together at least twice a week out loud while holding hands after sharing intimate prayer requests that the divorce rate for those couples goes from about 50% down to, are you ready for this, less than 1%. If you just got together with your spouse and prayed twice a week out loud, oh, Pastor, I'm embarrassed to pray out loud. Get over it. Your marriage is at stake. You say you take a bullet for her, take a prayer for her, okay? I don't know how you stay mad at your spouse while you're talking to God with her or with him. I've tried. You can't do it. Somehow, as we're growing closer to God, we're growing closer to each other. Let's thank him for that. Dear God, I thank you today for this thing called relationships. And I thank you in particular today for the relationship between a man and a woman for a lifetime that gets deeper and sweeter and purer. Thank you, dear Father, that we are even enticed to step outside of your will when it comes to our marriage. But as we trust you, we grow stronger and we see your faithfulness. And we see that even if our spouse is not where they need to be right now, you're going to meet our needs and we don't have to be frustrated and we don't have to leave or violate that relationship in order to have those needs met. Thank you, dear Father, that people are looking at our marriages. Oh my goodness, what a light a Christian marriage is in a dark world of divorce. And we thank you, dear Father, that when I love my wife, I'm really thanking you for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.